Peace be with you. Good to see you this morning. Um, you open your Bible to uh, Ecclesiastes 4 or turn your Bible on if that's your thing. Um, or if you'd like to just follow along on the screens, that's fine too. Maybe for you, just take a deep breath and uh, prepare your mind as we receive the word this morning. Um, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 4, looking at verse 7 through 16. Learning. Uh, another portion of the Bible's uh, approach to wisdom, it's the Bible's philosophy on wisdom. Remember, uh, as we, re- I don't know if, if, if you've been coming uh, during this Ecclesiastes series, or maybe, maybe you're not familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes or the Bible in general, this is an interesting book. It's a very different book than the other books in the Bible. And just, just want to prime you a little bit, just to remind you, or maybe for the first time, you know, what kind of book you're reading. It's very different. Um, I've said it before, but it's not like a positive approach. It's a negative approach, but it's kind of like this book that if you read it every morning before you started your day, it would be a book that would question you. It would be the book that would say, before you start your day, uh, ask yourself what it is that you're going to be doing today and why are you doing it? That's what it would do. Um, it's not a book telling you to uh, consider that there might be a God. It, is, it assumes that. It assumes that you know of a God. Um, it's not a book even really telling you to have a faith in God. It would assume that. It, 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 it's not opposed to that. Obviously, it's very much the preacher who writes this. He's very much for that. It would be a book that would say, uh, if you want to be wise, you need to have a brutally honest faith in God. Like you, to be wise in a life with God, you need to be someone who um, asks the hard, scary questions about your life uh, as you approach God. Um, so that's what it's doing. Let, 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 let's look hear what the, what the preacher is saying. Ecclesiastes 4, starting in verse 7. Here's what he says, the familiar refrain that he keeps repeating. Um, he says, again, I saw vanity under the sun, a futility, right? Smoke, vapor, that's the word there. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil, his work. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches. And so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This is vanity. This is an unhappy business. (laughs) Two are, are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who was alone, two will withstand him. And he goes even a step further. He says a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth and an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne. Though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun uh, along with that youth who was sustained in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. 
So um, you get it, right? <laughs> I mean, you get it? Like, actually, this was somewhat, somewhat of the, a more clear one than we've read in the past. Um, I think you probably get the gist of what he's saying. He's, uh, what's he talking about? I mean, anybody want to take a stab at it? Yeah, friendship. I guess Mike gave that away earlier in the liturgy. Friendship, uh, companionship. He's contrasting, right? Like he's contrasting a life of isolation versus a life of, of cooperation, relationship, human relationship. I'm going to use the word um, companion or companionship maybe throughout the sermon I, I, in a general sense because I think he, he doesn't really specify, does he? Like he doesn't talk about what kind of relationship he's commending. He's just talking about cooperating, working with, knowing, being known and knowing others. He's commending that. And, and and I say that because, you know, he's not specific, and I want to mention that it's not specific, and I want to talk about all human relationship, community, church community, and other friends that you have. Um, you know, the church rightly often uh, highlights marriage as a very precious relationship, and th th that's true. Um, but also, sometimes the church neglects the value uh, of friendship. Um, and the Bible holds both, right? Like, in one sense, the church is the bride of Christ, and it's like, yes, that's awesome. Um, but also Jesus in John 15, I mean, he says very clearly, like, I no longer call you servants, I call you friend. So both are there. So I just want to make sure that we go beyond just the marriage relationship. I want you to realize that as an, I mean, I would say that the healthiest marriages are rooted in friendship. Um, but that being said, I, I don't want you to miss the fact that more is in view here, and more is in view in the Bible than just marriage. We're, we're talking about knowing and working with other people, loving neighbor, being known by your neighbor, these sorts of things. So here's the overall point, right? Here's the point of today. Here's the point, I think, of, of what he's getting at. And this is, I think, baked into the entire Bible. Um, human companionship, um, human relationship, community, these things, um, friendship, whatever you want to put it, human companionship is absolutely essential to your life, but it is not the essence of your life. You get that. So friendship, companionship is absolutely essential to your life, but it is not the essence of your life. Um, the relationships that the human relationships that you cultivate in this life under the sun, he uses that term a lot, under the sun. He's talking about life here and now. The relationships that you cultivate under the sun are essential, the Bible would say, for you to develop a life of godliness and a life of wisdom absolutely essential. It's an essential, essential ingredient to you. But your uh, relationships and the companions that you live life with, um, they're not the essence of your life. In other words, they are not uh, the most significant element or aspect to your soul. I would even say that uh, they're not the place in which you derive the ultimate meaning and fulfillment, right? Um, you, you, you could see this in Paul uh, in Philippians 2, I think it is, um, it's one or two there where, you know, Paul's in prison, he's writing that letter, and he's talking about, he says, like, to live is Christ. And he talks about how, like, I don't know what my outcome is, I know what I want to be. I know it's far better for me to, to go be with Jesus. But if I'm here in the present, then I have a role in your life, and I value that. There's fruitful labor with me. So he's, he's holding that. And so what I'm just trying to say that the wise person I would say that the preacher knows this, and the Bible um, highlights this throughout. It's really from beginning to end. The wise person is someone who holds this tension of both knowing the, the value, the essential nature of friendship and companionship, while at the same time knowing that it is not the essence of who you are. 
All right, so um, realize that the wisdom literature in the Bible, like, book, like Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, uh, Song of Solomon, the Psalms even, um, Job, like these books that you go to for wisdom, these are the, the wisdom books of the Bible, um, realize they're essentially breaking people down into two categories, the wise and the foolish. I know we love personality profiles, and I know that we love to break people up in all these categories, and that's super helpful, and the Bible doesn't negate the fact that there's all these different personalities and a diversity of gifts and things like that. Um, but when you boil it all down and you get past all the, the trappings of gifts and different personality types, uh, the Bible would say, really, there's just, it, it all boils down to two different approaches to life. There's two different people. There's the wise and there's the fool. That's the Bible's approach to human beings. Um, and so uh, the wise are, are the people that know that there is a God, know that they are not God, and know that they are not capable of being him. Um, they, they live in such a way that they know that there are consequences to their life because there is a God who judges. Whereas the fool, once you really boil it down, the fool is someone, according to the Bible, um, the fool is someone who lives their life as if there is no God. You know, regardless of what they say. They're living in such a way that they're, they, they're not recognizing the, the fact that there is a God who will judge. Or, 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 or the fool is someone who knows that there is a God and things like that, but they constantly live in their life as if somehow that they have, don't have human limitations. So they think they can be everywhere all the time. They think they can do all things, know all things. That's, that's the Bible's version of a uh, fool. Uh, but that's not all. The, the Bible would also say that, um, and the preacher would say this, that the fool lives in such a way that they neglect companionship. The fool, according to the Bible, isn't just someone who, doesn't, who lives in such a way that they don't think that there is a God. The fool, according to the Bible, is someone who thinks that they don't need other people. The Bible would say, you're a fool. You don't understand human life. You don't understand how you're wired. You don't understand how you're built. Um, it, regardless of how you see it morally, it's just practically for, you know, the wisdom literature traffics in and, and pragmatic, uh, the pragmatics of life, and it would just say, you're just silly. Like, you don't, you're not thinking about the consequences of living a life of radical individualism and isolation. It's silly and foolish. Um, it's just better to be rooted in a community. It's far more advantageous to you to seek cooperation with others and counsel from others. And he says it plainly there in, in verse 9, uh, two are better than one. There's nothing like trick... There's no trick thing here. He just is just saying it very plainly. They have a good reward for their toil. Um, what's the reward? What would you say the reward is for um, their companionship and their cooperation? Simply put, I think he's saying help. Right? He gave you examples. Uh, verse ten: If they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone and falls, and he has no one to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will stand in me. So he's just repeating himself. In context, it's like the preacher is talking about the value of companionship in terms of survival and advancement. Like you're, He's just saying, you're going to get far more ahead in life if you've got people that know you. If you've got friends, or in our day, if you're networked, <laughs> you know, you're just stronger, you're in an advantage as, as a person, 
You can withstand, he would say, the pressures and conflicts that you will inevitably run into in this life when you have people close to you. If you have people close to you, you are prepared for life's struggles. Uh, Verse 13, he says, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For this young, poor uh, youth, right? He went from prison to the throne. Though his kingdom, he had been poor. Why? You have to read into it, but essentially he's saying, because the young kid, even though you know, he's in prison and he's poor, he's a, he has friends and he takes advice. <laughs> and he can replace the old foolish king. Apparently, the root cause of the foolish king is rooted in the fact that he was isolated. Show me someone... Um, who lacks companionship, and I will show you someone who refuses or just sadly doesn't get the opportunity to receive counsel and advice. Proverbs 12, 15 says this, uh, fools think their own way is right. They think that their own way is right, but the wise listen to others. You see, the Bible, uh, if you know it generally, like from the beginning to the end, the Bible is this story giving you a perspective uh, on yourself and God and the world in relational terms. It's, an, it's a relational book. That's how you have to read it. When you go back to the beginning, you look at Adam being created, and it all begins in very relational terms, right? The first utterance of God that we know of when he said something wasn't good, what was it? Genesis 2.18, then the Lord God said, he's looking at Adam, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So here was Adam. He's an image bearer of God. He was built for God. But Adam, apparently, and I can't fully grasp this, but even though he's in the garden, he's with God, somehow God looks at him and he's like, it's going to be better for him if he has human companionship. That's fascinating. It's unbelievable when you think about it. And then it all really unravels. You know, you can really look at that story just look at the first few pages of the Bible, read it, and you can get a, a, deeply, a deep, profound explanation for why the world is in relational terms. It's all relational, right? Even when you look at God walking in the cool of the day, that's the language Genesis uses. That's a Hebrew metaphor for friendship. God was in friendship with them. And then they don't trust the friendship. They don't think that he's up to what good things there, and they think they can define reality for themselves. So they eat that fruit and all that. You know that story probably. And then things unravel, and then he approaches them. And you know, God goes to Adam, and he's like, where are you? I mean, do you think that God doesn't know where Adam is geographically? You ever thought about that? And he's like, where are you, Adam? Like, what is Adam's like hiding behind a tree? Like God can't see him? He created him. What is he doing? Why is he asking that? Have you ever asked a friend, where are you? Like emotionally? See, like the moment that happened, like the friendship is severed. And because, I mean, you could say in some ways, the whole world is broken because of a broken friendship. It's fascinating, isn't it? When you think about it. And by the way, you know, uh, like I could go on and on and on talking about how relationship starts off in the beginning and then it ends there, like... It's all about relationship, but this isn't just the Bible's perspective. I can totally uh, geek out here for a little bit, so just allow me to do that. Will you allow me to do that for a little bit? Um, 
it's, it's, this, is, this is backed by the scientific community. And, and, and if you know me and you know my preaching and you, you, on this particular topic, you're like, here he goes. Um, we know psychologists, sociologists, and medical practitioners, like they will back the same principle that you are created for community, like you were built for that. Um, and human connection, you know, they will tell you that, you know, babies, deprive a baby of human, a newborn baby of human connection, and all sorts of strange things will happen to them. It's not good for their development. Deprive an elderly person of human connection, and they will deteriorate quickly. Um, deprive the rest of us, <laughs> right, in the middle portion of that, deprive us of human companionship, and whether you recognize it or not, okay, because I understand some of us don't always recognize it, We're not, some of us are the last person to ever know that we are not okay. So whether you know it or not, deprive you and me of human companionship, and whether you know it or not, you'll begin to atrophy emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually, you will atrophy. You may not be aware of it, but your spouse is or your friends that you used to have that miss you, they will know it. Uh, there's this, this world-renowned psychologist, Dr. Robin, Robin Dunbar, I don't know if you know him, he's got this book called Friends. Great book, if you're interested in learning about friendship, you can read it. He says this, uh, perhaps the most surprising finding to emerge from the medical literature over the past two decades has been the evidence that the more friends we have, the less likely we are to fall prey to diseases. And the longer we will live. He quotes, um, he, he goes to Julianne Holt-Lundstad um, and her research. He says, she, she leads the Social Connections and Health Laboratory at Utah's Brigham Young University and specializes in the impact of social connections and loneliness on our life chances. She provides us with some particularly compelling evidence. She examines 148 epidemiological studies that provide data on factors that includes people's risk of dying. Now, this is a very hard-nosed study, if you're interested in medical studies. Now, in other words, it's, it involves over 300,000 patients, and, it, and it's, it's not measuring something subjective, which is what a lot of studies... It, it, it's very hard-nosed in that it's measuring whether or not these people lived, whether they survived. Um, among the factors included in the analysis were all the usual suspects beloved by your doctor. How overweight are you? How much do you smoke? How much alcohol do you drink? How much exercise do you get? How polluted is the air in which, where you live? Have you had the flu vaccine? What rehabilitation re regime are you currently on? Have they given you any drugs? In addition, to all of those things. So those are the typical questions you're used to, right, from your doctor. In addition to this, though, they, they, they added things. Um, they looked at a, a, a battery of, of measurements upon your social, these people's social world, and they included questions like this. Are you married or single? How much do you participate in social activities? How many friends do you have? How involved are you with your friends and with the wider community in which you live? Do you feel lonely or socially isolated? How much emotional support do you feel and get from other people? And here was the big surprise. You guys all right? You still with me? The big surprise in all of this study was that it was the social measures that most influenced these people's chances of survival, and especially so after a heart attack or stroke. 
The best predictors were those that contrasted high versus low frequencies of social support and that those that measured how well, integrated in, how well you were integrated into your social network in your local community. He goes on and he says this, and I just love this. Um, don't be offended by this. This is a scientific journal I was getting this from, okay? He says, it will no doubt get me into trouble with the medical profession. But it is not too much of an exaggeration to say that you can eat as much as you like, drink as much alcohol as you want, slob about as much as you fancy, fail to do your exercises, and live in as polluted an atmosphere as you can possibly find, and you will barely notice the difference. But having no friends or not being involved in a community uh, will dramatically affect how long you will live. Anybody want to sign up for membership? Or take an emotional, spiritual approach to this. If you like, just are like, thank you, he's done with that. Uh, Mother Teresa, right? Mother Teresa, she wrote this once. The greatest disease in the West, in the West today, is not TB or leprosy. It is being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for. We can cure physical diseases with medicine, but the only cure for loneliness, despair, and hopelessness is love. There are many in the world who are dying for a piece of bread. But there are many more dying of a little love. The poverty in the West, where we live, right? The poverty in the West is a different kind of poverty. It is not only a poverty of loneliness, but a poverty of spirituality. There is a hunger for love as there is a hunger for God. My guess is you're like, I get it. You don't have to prove it to me because that's what all I was doing there. Like, you need to have relationships and community. I think the vast majority of you are like, I agree. But is it possible, right, that there is a gap between what we say and what we believe and what we're actually living? Is there a possible gap there? Like, um, I would say this, it's very possible that for many of us, for you, um, at the start of 21, you know, come this, this past spring, we found ourselves, or you find yourself here right now, um, you find yourself in a place that you're lonely and estranged maybe from family or friends and community because of, you know, everything that happened last year. And, you know, I was listening to a Christian psychologist talk about how like scientifically, you want to you create a human being. Like we know a human being is built for a human connection, routine and structure, and a sense of control. And the pandemic robbed us of all three, which is why everybody's crazy. And so there's a possibility that you um, started this past year, or you're in this place right now, where you feel somewhat estranged from some people, right? I'm just throwing this out there. So we were forced out of routines of work and community that kept our hearts healthy, um, even though we really didn't really know that previously to past year. And, and, and many people now are experiencing a sense of loss, a loss of relationships. Um, and it's doubtful that you probably gained a whole new set of relationships over the last year. And my guess is, is that some of you have thought, actually thought about calling some people saying, hey, are we still cool? Are we still friends? Or maybe you've thought about, there are people in your life, maybe you've thought about calling and saying, hey, I just want you to know, like, I miss, miss you. Like, the past year has no bearing in terms of how I actually think about you. It's just like, we just got away from each other. I was hiding. You were hiding. 
you know, these are things. Now, here's the thing. I'm not saying, I'm not going to get into, um, like, I'm not saying whose fault that is. I don't think we play the blame game here. It's of no value to do that. We could do that all day. I'm just simply stating what plainly is about us as people. But here's the preacher in Ecclesiastes. He's addressing a kind of relational loss, a kind of isolation, a loneliness that we might feel that does not result from some pandemic where we couldn't help ourselves. He's talking about a kind of relational loss that comes, that stems from our own blind individualism and our blind workaholism. Verse 7, the very beginning. Again, he's looking out at the world, and he's like, I'm just noticing something. That's what he's saying. I just notice something as I look out. I see a person who has nobody else, right? Yet, they're working all the time. And they never stop, as he says, and, he a- and asks themselves, why am I working all the time? I keep saying I'm working for other people. I keep saying I'm working for a retirement and which point I will have this huge retirement where I'm going to host these big dinners. And he's saying, that's silly. You, you get it? Like what he's getting at? He's calling us out. The preacher's saying, I, I see something really sad and unfortunate. Someone unwittingly, they unwittingly make work, achievement, advancement of their own little kingdom the priority of their lives. I think you could call this radical individualism. Relational ties become obstacles. They don't have time for them. And they wouldn't say that they don't matter, right? They would never say that. They would say, I'll get to my relationships when things slow down. I'll get to my relationships when I finish up this work. I'll get to all of that when I get to a more comfortable spot. But they never are willing to stop and be honest and ask themselves, wait, I, I recognize a pattern. Like, I, I keep talking about, I'll get to that person this Friday, but then when Friday rolls around, you make a whole new list of chores. I'll, I'll, like, it, think of it this way. I, I, I think he's saying that a lot of people think of, the, they, they, their life is like they're going to build a house. And they're going to spend all this time building a house so that they can have this great dining room table and they can fill it with all this great food and they can have all of their friends over to eat this dinner and it's going to be this wonderful, like, you, <laughs> wonderful moment of blessed community. Um, but because they don't spend any time with anyone along the way, by the time they get to the point where they're going to sit down at the dining room table, they don't have any friends to call. Sad. That's what he's saying. That's essentially what he's getting at. The preacher is saying, you're living so fast and busy, you're isolated. You're living right past the people in front of you as you pursue some goal in the future. And that lifestyle, um, you have this lifestyle, even when it's couched in a fantastic work ethic, he's saying it's terribly foolish and unhappy. And this is like, you know, our society, like our society praises workaholism. Like it's a badge of honor. It's, but he would say it's a chasing of the wind. Like it's futile, right? It's sad and it's a pointless endeavor. He's simply saying, this, the Bible's saying that advancement, achievement, relentless pursuit of more often ends with a loss of self, a, a loss of who you really are, a loss of where you came from, um, 
a loss of meaningful relationships. He's saying that workaholism, radical individualism, brings isolation. Isolation brings foolishness. Foolishness leads to destruction. Got it? <laughs> we could stop there, and that would be like, you would be, you would, there would be value in just stopping that and reflecting on reevaluating your time and your relationships just by saying, I need to have more rest and relationships. Like, great. You could make headway there. Um, but I don't think that we would grasp all that the Bible has on the, this topic. Um, and this is the second part, the essence part. Um, human companionship, friendship, community is absolutely essential to a life of wisdom, but it is not the essence, right, of your life. Uh, just because um, something is essential doesn't make it the ultimate point, right? Like, don't we know that? Food. Food is essential to my life. I deteriorate if I don't eat. Food is not the essence of my life. Like, it's not, it's not the point. You're like, well, you should come over and have my cooking. Um, but you get it, right? I'm trying to say uh, the same thing about human companionship. I'd be remiss if, if I didn't go just a bit further here in helping us understand the role and the place human companionship is in our life. Some of us already understand, I think many of you, maybe most of you all understand um, how essential companionship is when we get that wisdom requires good friends and wisdom requires deep ties to a community. Uh, wisdom requires us to have an openness and a love for our neighbor. But unwittingly, I think we maybe can make an idol Right out of like we can make too much of our companionship, our community. Like we can highlight community above Jesus, and we don't even know it. We can think like, oh, I'm rooted in community. I'm growing. Really? Have you asked your friends? Have you changed at all in the last five years? Like we don't, and it's subtle, insidious, and we don't always see it coming. We can inevitably find ourselves in these moments where we're disappointed, uh, or maybe you're perpetually disappointed in the fickleness of your community or your friends or your family, like just always disappointed. You're, uh, we can find ourselves in moments where um, we, 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 we struggle to break in um, to a community. I mean, what do you do when you end up deeply scarred when someone abandons you? Like, what do you do with it? Because it happens. When you find yourself struggling to break into a church or to a club or in the workplace, what do you do when you feel deeply frustrated in your attempts to love neighbors? Like I've had moments where I've tried to love neighbors like quite literally like on my street and fallen flat on my face, totally embarrassed and just went home in shambles like I am so bad at this. You know, I just need to be right here. This is my place. Don't get me out of this little place. <laughs> what do you do? Or there's another side of this uh, kind of idolatry. What, what happens when what happens when we cling and feed on relationships and we don't even know it? Like community, the community or the friendships that you have aren't this mutual building up, it's you feeding on it. It's all about you. Is that what, what, is that what we were designed for? Like, is that the point of community? Sometimes we look and cling to certain relationships like a spouse or a friend, like we're trying to fill this void of belonging that we have, and we don't know why she won't do it for me. He won't do it for me. Like, why, are, why is the 
you know, why is the boyfriend or the girlfriend or the wife or the husband or the friend that you've had, you're just never satisfied. And we feel these things. If we don't hold this tension that community is essential, but not the essence of our lives, man, we just end up defeated and hopeless very often. Or we just end up endlessly hungry for more and so confused as to why we're always so hungry and never satisfied. When you experience these struggles in cultivating a life of deep companionship, here's what I would say. You can respond in four ways. We do this. We, we respond in four ways to our, the way we relate to people, when we, especially when we have moments where we feel neglected or abandoned or whatever it is. One, response one, you can blame them. So it's your friend's fault. It's your family's fault. It's your church's fault. Get a new church. Get a new friend. Get a new neighborhood. Get a new school. Just, it's always them. We can not do that, we can blame ourselves. Like wholesale, blame yourself. It's your fault. So we can go into self-pity and shame. This is where many of you go. You can go into the shame thing and you can hide from people. You, 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 you can, uh, or the pendulum can swing the other way and you can obsess over trying harder, you know, to impress and to get more closeness with people. And we all know this from the playground, right? Remember the playground. The one person that desperately wants friends the most and trying so hard is the one that never gets them. It's just not how it works. Uh, or three, you can blame the world. So this is a more philosophical approach. Uh, you can become the proverbial cynic. So uh, I think the way this most often manifests itself in our modern day is you can just be the person that sits alone a lot and yet you get on social media and you just critique people. Like you're the proverbial cynic. And so you either type the explicit criticism or judgment on the internet or you don't. You, you instead you just sit back and you just have your judgmental fantasies all to yourself. I feel so great about me. Look how dumb they are. Because it's the world. And they're the ones to blame. Or you can do the fourth way. And I think this is the way of wisdom. You can stop blaming altogether. You can stop criticizing altogether. And you can open yourself up to curiosity instead. Like, what's going on? You can become curious about what this longing in you, this loneliness you feel, is about. You can, you can start to ask, like, what's this, wh why do I have this existential question? Of, like, why do I have this desire for intimacy? Like, why do I have a desire? Why do I have such a deep desire for closeness to another person that doesn't have some shadowy dynamic to it of shame behind it? Like, what is it about that? Like, I really want to desperately be known and know somebody else, and there's no, nothing there that I need to look out for or be afraid of. What? Why do I want that so bad? And maybe, if you can go there in your mind and in your heart, maybe you can be open and curious enough to realize, oh, wait, you can think, maybe it's because that's the kind of intimacy that you and I had in the garden with God it's the kind of intimacy that we lost because of sin. 
And it's the intimacy to which Jesus is winning back anew through his life, death, and resurrection. That's the point. Like he's bringing you back to God in that kind of a relationship, and you were built that way. And so you don't need to like shrug that, those feelings off. You just need to stop blaming all of your mediocre friends and recognize, oh, this feeling is okay. I just need to know where I need to go to feel it. This might only be a few of you, one, I don't know how many, but some of you, as you hear this, some of you might be uncertain about God because of just where you're at spiritually in your life. Um, some of you might be angry with God. One of my favorite things to do as, as a pastor is to not sit with people in their anger with other people, but to sit with people in their anger towards God. It's my favorite thing to do. And there are people here, I'm sure, that are struggling with anger towards God, whether they know it or not. Like they're managing that disappointment that they have with him. And they're managing it because they've had such a crappy life. Like they've had such a hard hand they've been dealt through relationships. Like they've had bad dad or bad mom. They've had kids that haven't loved back or um, they've had marriages that have failed. They've just had horrible relational things happen to them. Abuse, neglect, like just horrible things. I'm, look, I get it. Like, I get how that then gets transferred onto God. And we struggle, because I can't tell you the answers to why those things have happened to you in your life. The, the family dynamics, the friend dynamics that you've experienced. I can't. I don't have the explanation. I think it's really unhelpful to give you some kind of answer to try to bring down your walls and your trust issues. But please, 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 please hear me. Please, don't put the abandonment, the neglect, the abuse, the fickle nature of other people that you've experienced, don't put that on Jesus. That's not how he is. You can't find it in the Bible. I'll just read you a portion that I think highlights this more than any place. Just before Jesus dies for the sins of you and me, dies for the sins of the world. He prays to his father. It's John 17. You're probably familiar with it. He prays to his father for his own strength and for ours. And here's what he says. It just takes, skip through it a little bit. He says, Father, the hours come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Verse 6. Please, but just listen to this. This is Jesus getting ready to die. And this is what he's praying about. Verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you, have, you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Verse 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. That's you. For they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I get glory in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost 
except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, and they may become perfectly, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you, may have, that, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That eternal life with God is the essence of your life, right? Like eternal life with God is the ultimate hope. It's the ultimate meaning. It's the ultimate fulfillment. It's the essence of your life. And Jesus defines eternal life not as just living forever, although it is that. He defines eternal life relationally. You see that? He defines it as knowing intimately the God of the universe and Jesus as his son. Simply put, loving and being present with your family, your earthly community, your neighbors, and all that is absolutely essential to your life of wisdom and joy. But communion with God Speaking with God in prayer, reading his word and obeying it, that's what John 15 says. Like it's not just knowing the word, but then seeking to obey the word. That's essential, or sorry, that's the essence of your life. It is what you were designed and built for. It's what you were chosen for. So as I'm close here, let me just, what am I saying to you? <laughs> What am I trying to say to you? I'm saying go get friends. <laughs> like, go, or, or if you have friends, don't neglect them. Cherish them. Yes, I'm saying that. Please, call them up. Make time for them. You need them more than you know. Love all of your neighbors as yourself. That's what the Bible calls us to do. Even when we don't receive it back. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus chose you and appointed you that you should show the, the world what love for neighbor actually looks like. He chose you out of the world to do that. But understand that the New Testament, every time it talks about you loving your neighbor as yourself, it's predicated on this idea that you know how loved you are in Christ. It's always predicated on that. If you want to have a true resiliency in your relationships, if you want to have courage, humility, grace, like in your friendships, you want to be able to show mercy, all these things, you want to have an impact in your friendship? Like, don't you want to have an impact in your marriage and in your friends and in, you know, on your street where you live? You want to have a, an impact in these relationships. You must spend time with Jesus to do it. Some of you love community. And I love that you love community. But your community is not being changed by you at all because you don't spend any time with Jesus. Like, the most impactful relationship that you could have in a friendship, for instance, is a friendship that you love and you spend time with this person. And when you go to them, it's because you are so in love with this. And you're talking about it with them. And in a sense, it's like you're more in love with Jesus in this than you are with them, but you just love being with them, and so you spend time with them. And you're like, this is, I read, this is what this is saying. It's crazy. 
That would be the most impactful relationship that you could have. If you want to have an impact in your relationships like that way, spend time with Jesus, please. The essence of your life is communion with God. It is, it is for you in prayer and in word and in trying to obey with everything that the scripture teaches. It's Jesus that you belong to. It's Jesus that is praying for you. It is Jesus that is keeping you. It is Jesus that is guarding you. It is Jesus that loves you to the bottom. It is Jesus that is calling you to love like you've never shown anyone else before. And it is Jesus that is coming back for you. Don't associate bad human relationships on Jesus, please. If you don't hear anything else I say, just hear that. That is not what Jesus is like. The best thing that you could possibly do is leave today and spend the rest of your day and the rest of this week finding time to spend time with Jesus. Spend time with Jesus. Please. Please. It will make all the difference in the world. Let's do it now in communion with him this way. This little wafer at the top is his body broken, and the juice below is his blood shed for us. If you're a Christian, just take time to be honest and reflect. I don't know what you got to do with today's message. Reevaluate your relationships. Reevaluate your time. Reevaluate how you're interacting in your friendships. I don't know. I don't know what it is that you need to do. But I know we all need to reevaluate. Oh, am I spending time really getting to know Jesus? And if you need time, if you need help learning how to read the word, please. That's one of our favorite things to do here. So we would love to do that with you. If you're not a Christian, um, I would encourage you to ask questions, get to know some people here. We'd love to walk you through that journey. Um, let me pray and we'll conclude. Father, we love you and we thank you. Thank you that you um, came down because we have broken this place in the way we relate to you and we broke this place in the way we relate to each other and um, you've said, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. And so, Father, as we... Um, feel and experience and learn to know and understand how much we are loved by you, may it then transfer into the way that we love others. That's my hope for myself and for the rest of this church body. Thank you so much that we're learning this together and that we are in process together. Um, thank you for the gift of friendship. Um, thank you for the gift of the church. And um, yeah, thank you for the gift of the neighbors that we currently have in our lives that we have an opportunity to love on. Um, as we go out, may we go out in peace and encourage. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.